0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather weekly to pursue God by studying His Word together. How can Christians find the motivation necessary to overcome the challenges of our modern culture and continue the mission that God has called us to? In Revelation, all things new, we'll discover a glorious description of the end of all things and the great kingdom to come. It's here we find motivation for our present challenges. Join us as we look to the end and find hope and strength for our mission in the present. Okay, so uh, I want to talk about COVID-19 for a second, because it's everyone's favorite topic, right? Actually, I don't even like mentioning COVID, because I just want us, let's not forget about it, let's move, or let's forget about it, let's move forward, celebrate that the world has moved on, right? But I want to share a story about COVID, because in my last church, it was interesting, because we were at a place where... We had to make the decision to shut the church down, and we were shut down for 10 weeks. And so here I am with our executive team, and we said, okay, we, we, we don't know what to do. Let's, let's shut this down. And, and so we didn't know how to engage our church anymore. You know what I'm saying? Like we gather, we high-five, we hug, we joke, we learn, um, we worship together, we serve together. Our kids, they are taught uh, a biblical education in our children's ministry. We didn't have any of that anymore. And so what we did is we actually printed off a list. We grabbed our database and we just printed off list of names and we divided it into 10 different sections. And we just said, you know what, let's just text everyone in our database uh, members attendees and let's do that every single week and then we'll pass it on to the next staff member just to try to fit, find a way to connect with people even in in a small way and, and so most most of the time people just left me on red right so they would just not respond uh, but but there were always people thank you pastor or thank you can you be praying for this etc but occasionally you get a disgruntled past member or attendee who for some reason was not taken off the list. And so you'd have these dandies every once in a while. I remember one time someone messaged me back and said, lose my number. In the name of Jesus, amen. I was like, what? What in the world? And uh, it's one thing to say, hey, you know, I appreciate you reaching out, but I chose to leave the church for X reasons, but hey, you lose my number, and then to even add that caveat of in the name of Jesus, amen, like, what in the world? So, um, so I was thinking about it, and I didn't lose sleep over it, you know, I didn't like hug my pillow crying over the tag, you know, I didn't do that, but I remember being like, ugh. You know what I'm saying? You get one of those texts or or comments, you're like, ugh, really? Or maybe for some of us, it's like, "Ah," you know? But the whole point is, I was just like, really? That's not cool. And uh, so I was thinking about our topic in our series, All Things New, on Revelation. And I want to talk about persecution today. And it's interesting because when I started thinking of persecution, that story came to mind. And the reality is, our persecution in the States is vastly different from what Christians are experiencing around the world. Right? If we did a show of hands in this room, it's probably a very, very small amount of people who have been disowned by a friend or family member because of their faith. I'm not saying that no one in here has been disowned or there's been anyone who's attacked you for your faith i'm not saying that that hasn't happened but the reality is it's probably not common uh, what we face in, in our society is different maybe it's it's governmental policies maybe it's people being passive aggressive but one thing that i notice most often for my faith is people are patronizing very patronizing very belittling or they make these little side comments, or, or they just limit interaction on that topic. But, but there's not really anyone who's like, hey, let's go out back behind the shed. I'm going to knock the teeth out of your face because you're a Christian. We don't have that. But the truth is, there are many in the world that do experience that exact thing. I was talking to one of my buddies. He's a campus pastor at Woodside Farmington. His name is... Jacob Lay. Jacob Lay, he's been a pastor at Woodside five, six years. And he was sharing a story how he was going on a mission trip to India. And his job at India was to train pastors and train church planters. That was his job. So he took a small team of people. They went out to India. And they were going to train pastors and church planters. Well, the day before he left for the trip... He got word that someone was not going to be attending any longer uh, on this pastor's training weekend, which is a big deal. Because it's not like in certain nations they have the type of trainings and equipment and and seminars that we have in the States. So he said, man, what happened? What happened to this pastor? And he said uh, that he found out that the pastor was actually jumped by a mob of people going around the city trying to hurt Christians. So here's this pastor. He is hospitalized. He's got severe wounds. He's gonna be in the hospital for a couple weeks. He can no longer attend. And my friend, he said it was interesting because I was thinking first about the person. And man, that is terrible. That's that's terrible news. Then he thought about himself. He's like, wait a minute. If if I go, I'm going to India tomorrow. And are, are they going to hurt me? Are they going to find me? I'm the one training these pastors. Am I in harm's way? I got small kids. This is not wise. you know. And he started going through all these scenarios because let's be real. We don't get persecuted in those ways often in the states. So then he decides still to go. He flies over and he gets to the, to the location they are at. And he immediately notices that these pastors, they're worried. They're they're timid, they're afraid for their lives, because that mob is still there. And and he, he sees that these pastors, they live in this reality every single day. That their faith could cost them their lives. And so I was thinking about it, and I'm like, okay, we're talking about persecution. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 20, verse 1 through 6. And and I'm like, man, how does this apply to us? How how can we relate to this? How can this be relevant to our lives? I believe it can. And, And I do believe that the United States is progressing And the trajectory is on a path that there will be greater persecution if we continue on this road. And depending where you are, in what city, in what location, there are greater forms of persecution. And so I was reading Open Doors, Open Doors International. They're an organization that studies and documents the persecuted church. They estimate that one in seven Christians are persecuted worldwide every day. And that adds up to about 360 million Christians. All right. What's the population of America? What is it? 330-ish? 330-ish? Okay, so if it's 330-ish, then that means there are more Christians than the population of the United States of America that are persecuted daily for their faith, that are worried for their children's safety. That's an awing number. And while we do not have those same experiences here in Chesterfield or New Haven or New Baltimore or Richmond or Marine City or uh, there's a China, right? I-, I thought it was East China. There's East China. Okay, both. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. It's, it's incredible. Okay. No, no matter where you are in this region, that there are still things we can glean from and, and, and learn from, but I want to ask us a question. Do I have permission to get real with us this morning? I got permission? Okay. You guys are much better than the 8:30. Someone's like, sure. I'm like, all right. Well, I'm doing it anyway, so sorry. <laughs> if you were in the position of those pastors in India, what would you do? If you were in a position where it could cost you your life, would you stay open about your faith? Would you kind of go underground and be like, yeah, I'm still going to be a Christian, but I'm not going to be as outspoken? Would you renounce your faith? Man, this is not what I signed up for. No way. No way at all. Would you stay the course? It's a polarizing question that we should ask ourselves. And most of us, we don't know. When we're in the moment, we would find out. But, but I think in this series, as we're talking through the last four chapters of the book of Revelation, him making all things new, this is what the people that John was writing the book of Revelation to were facing every day. So they were facing death. They were facing the Roman Empire. He himself was exiled. The, the guy who wrote Revelation was exiled to an island. They say, you're causing too much problems. We're sending you to this island of Patmos. And so he himself, when writing to them, was a recipient of this type of persecution. And so they were were facing a heavy hand of trouble and despair. And they were overwhelmed. And here he tells in the last four chapters, it's going to be okay. And, like we talked about last week, if you hear last week, we talked about how Jesus will return to defeat his enemies, that He will win. And so today, as we go into the next chapter of chapter twenty, John now begins to visualize what Jesus's return will be for the entire world. This is what's going to look like. This is what's going to be like. And he seeks to encourage his audience. By showing them that Christ will reign in a millennial kingdom. That Christ will reign in a millennial kingdom. And he would encourage them by saying this. That hey, there will be a day that he will reign and you will not have the same persecution that you have. And so here we have this statement. And if you're into end times study, the name of that study or study of end times uh, the the term is called eschatology, so if you want to sound smart to someone, be like, "What do you believe on eschatology?" You know, and so no matter what eschatological understanding you have, there has been many trees that have died and ink shed over what this millennial kingdom is, and people come from different forms of thought, different theological systems of thought. So whether you have read commentaries and heard sermons and studied scripture for yourself, or, or you're like, I don't know about this millennial kingdom, tell me more. I want us to come t- to the end of this message and be encouraged by what the text is pointing us to. And so let's jump into millennium. So let's, let's give a definition of millennium so we're all on the same page. So millennium means a thousand years. That's what a millennium means, okay? And, and a, it's a phrase repeated five times throughout Revelation chapter 20, verse 1 through 6. So th- there's got to be a reason for that, right? So if we have a millennium that's repeated five times in those six verses, and it means a thousand years, why is it there? What, what is the point of this? <clears throat> and, and so that's something we're going to delve into. And so then we have this millennium, and that is what tends to create the different major views of end times. And so there are three major views and theological systems that people approach end times study. And so there's different versions, and there's other words that are added on to these. But ultimately, these three are the views that most people possess when looking at end times, and one of the views is pre-millennial, pre-thousand years, Christ will come back. Amillennial, which has a lot to do with uh, the millennial time being not a literal thousand years, but a symbolic thousand years. And then post-mill, which is Jesus will return after. After the thousand years, and the thousand years, he's reigning on his throne in heaven, but he won't be here on earth reigning. So these are the main views, and there's other ones that you can add and and throw in there to add on to those three. But ultimately, those are the three views. And so if you aren't familiar with it, I think you have an advantage today. (laughs) Because you got a clean slate. (laughs) And you can go and look at the text as is. And and come to conclusions. So I think it's important now that we understand not the when, the where, or how of all this stuff that's happening, but the what and the why. Because we're all fixated on when's it going to happen. When's it going to happen? I had a guy at my last church. I remember 2017. He was leading a life group of freshman guys. He said, guys, listen up. They all leaned in. He says, just want to tell you, Jesus is coming back September 2017. I said, what? I got three calls from parents. Why, are you, why is someone telling us that Jesus is coming in September 2017? Well, guess what? September passed. Well, I got my numbers wrong. It's actually January of 2018, all right? All right. And then January 18 goes by. Well, I think it's September of 2018. I think it was a year off, actually. My numbers are right, but just off a year. And so the thing is, nobody knows. Can I stay frozen for a little bit? Okay. <laughs> it's above my pay grade. He knows. We look at signs, we know by signs, we know by the word. We want to be prepared when he returns, but ultimately, we don't know when, we don't know necessarily where, we want to focus on the what and the why, and that's what we're going to engage with the text today, and so we're going to talk about and work through the question, what marks these thousand years that John describes? What marks these thousand years? What do we want to glean from? What do we want to see that marks these thousand years? And it starts off our text with Satan being bound. So, what we do know is that Satan will be bound. In chapter 20, verse 1 through 3, you can open your Bibles, Bible apps. This is what it says. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. So last week we talked about the birds being gorged with the flesh of sinners. And now we get to talk about Satan being chained down for a thousand years so he cannot deceive the nations. And if you look at the first three words, then I saw. This is John seeing a vision. God is giving him a vision that he is to share. "That I saw. And it's a, almost a continuation of the visions that he had seen earlier, and it's important to know with with Satan that there are the unholy trinity of evil characters in the book of Revelation, and the unholy trinity that you will see a lot of are, are Babylon, are the false prophet, and Satan. And so Babylon and the false prophet, they go down in chapters 18 and 19. But now we see in chapter 20, we see that God is now facing and focusing his attention to the worst of the worst. To his ultimate arch enemy, Satan himself. Devil himself. And so he uses this language even just eight chapters earlier and he says this, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Guys, when you see the deceiver of the whole world, just remember that when Jesus was tempted by Satan, that he was taken to the top of the temple and he was looking out on the whole world. And he said, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. They're yours. I'll give them to you only if you will bow to me. So when it says here that he's the deceiver of the whole world, he deceives world powers. He deceives governments. He deceives us at times. He is the one of uh, ancient serpent of old who's been a thorn in the flesh of Christians since the beginning of time, all throughout history. And so he is deceiving the world, and John was highlighting that Satan is standing against God and his people. And, and I think it's important for us to know that when he is cast into this pit with the key and chain and bound in this bottomless pit, uh, we see that, that that pit is a place that is, that is seen as a dwelling place of evil. This pit is straight, evil, and perverse. But not only is the devil bound and thrown in the pit for a thousand years, but the pit is shut and sealed during this time. And it's important to us to, for us to know that these are all symbolic descriptions used to describe a severe, if not total, restraint of the devil's power and influence. Was he literally thrown into a pit? Was he literally chained up? What we do know is that he will be restrained from his influence. And his influence, in this case, is deceiving the nations, which is another part of what that is that has been debated over the years, the deceiving of many nations. But no matter what, we have a clue given in verse 8 where we see that the deception of the devil is the work of gathering and then leading the nations together in a final attack against God's people in Holy City. So I think it's important for us to know that with this millennial time, with Satan bound, is it literal? Is it figurative? Is God reigning in heaven? Is he reigning on earth? But regardless... What we do know is a couple things with how the Jews approached using the word a thousand years. This is really important for proper hermeneutics, proper context. This is what we have when we talk about um, a Jewish word used a thousand years. Jewish writing, a thousand years, is a symbol of God's time, as we see in Psalm 94 and 2 Peter 3.8 and is a number utilized to communicate an immense and ideal state of time, marking the messianic reign that stands in contrast to the much lesser numbers used through the book. So, the ideal state of time, a thousand years, to communicate a long amount of time, but the perfect amount of time. So, John is strategically using this number to signify... The reign of the Messiah in an ideal period of time, because you think about it, it's two thousand years after Christ right now, right? So does that mean Christ hasn't started his reign, or is he reigning in heaven right now? Those are good questions to ask. But John, the focus again, coming back to it, this is to be an encouragement to who he's writing. Remember, they're being persecuted, they are dying, and so he's encouraging them, hey, there's a time coming when Satan is cast with a decisive blow, and his power will be removed. And so with this encouragement to the audience, it's to overcome. It's reminding them, overcome, In the face of pressure, in the face of spiritual forces of darkness, a day is coming when the enemy's power is going to be removed. Let's say I'm boxing, okay? I got my moves. You know, I was in Louisville last, so, you know, that's a land of Muhammad Ali, a.k.a. Cassius Clay, right? You got Muhammad Ali stuff everywhere. Boxing was big. And, And so let's imagine I'm in a fight, right? And let's say I'm getting through four rounds, and, and let's be real. Okay, I'm getting beat up, all right? I'm getting beat up in these four rounds. It ain't looking good. The only thing that's holding on is my dad bod. It's taking enough hits just for a couple extra rounds. So I'm taking a couple hits, and then the, the, the round is over, and I go and I sit by my manager, and I do this spit in the spit-in-the-can thing and try to look cool, and, and I'm like, man, I, I got to talk to you. I, I got to throw in the towel. I, I cannot last... Another round. He's beating me up. You know, my cheek is cut open. I think I lost my eyebrow out there. Like, I am am struggling. I just want to throw in the towel. I want to be done with this. Well, what if he told me, hey, hold on for one more round, okay? You got to last this last round because after that, we just found out that they have used performance-enhancing drugs. So what we're going to do is, after this round, we're going to tie their arms behind their back. And they got to fight the rest of the fight with their arms tied behind their back. Okay? I'd be like, oh, that's weird, first of all. But second of all, like, okay, there's no way you can fight (laughs) with your arms tied behind your back, right? So in the midst of that, i got one more round. So every time I take a hit, I take a blow, every time I'm reminded, wait a minute. Just wait the round. Just survive the round. Because next round, I'll be able to fight back. Even though I hurt now, even though the pressure is on now, even though I'm I'm troubled now, even though I'm weary now, the time is coming where I'm going to be able to strike. And I'll be able to win that fight. It's interesting because this is what John is telling the disciples. It's not saying that the hits won't hurt. (laughs) It's not saying that the world won't hurt. But he's saying, hold on. There's a day coming. Be encouraged. There is hope. This is ultimately for the best of you. You know, often in the journey of following Jesus, the power and pressure From the enemy, from the world. Let's be real, it can be overwhelming. And it does hurt. And we ask ourselves, am I going to have to fight these physical ailments forever? I'm sick of it. And where'd they come from? They're genetic. You know, this isn't something I can control. Or what about the mind? Our mind can be a scary place, y'all. And, and we have these thoughts, these dark thoughts, and these, and, these, and these bouts of depression and hurt and insecurity. And we say, man, is my mind ever going to be pure? And am I ever going to be just not thinking and hurting like this? And relationship, our relationships... With with people, with with our spouses, our girlfriends, boyfriends. Man, it's hard. (laughs) It can be difficult. And and will we ever be able to be on the same page? And I think it's important to remember the words of John in Revelation 20. To be encouraged. Because there will be a day that the enemy will not have the power That he does. You know, why do we suffer rejection? Why do we suffer hurt? Why do we attend church? Why do we stay in our faith? Because of what is on the other side. The hope that we have and the relationship that we have with Christ. We can continue forward. The second thing we see, the second mark, as you would say, in this millennial reign is the saints will be reigning with the victorious king. We see that the saints, Christians, saints is just another name for Christians, will reign with the victorious king, Jesus. Look at what it says in verse 4 through 6, that I saw thrones, and seated on them were those whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image. And had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So, again, in this vision, you have that phrase again, then I saw. And he saw thrones, which was a symbol of authority, which was a symbol of reigning, and a symbol of a judge. And then the imagery John is drawing from, and this is is Daniel chapter 7. If you want to go back and read Daniel chapter 7, where we see a reign of authority and judgment given to the Son of Man and his Christians, or, or what it says, his holy ones. Both Scripture and Revelation promise that God's people would reign with him one day. I mean, Maybe you've never heard that before, but God's people will reign with him one day. And and part of that picture is here. Part of that vision is here. And so he highlights a specific group of people. Do you know the specific group of people he highlights? Martyrs. Does anyone know what a martyr is? Someone who dies for their cause. So a Christian martyr is someone who dies for their Christian cause. And so here, I mean, we're in the last four verse or chapters of the Bible, they highlight martyrs. Those who have paid the ultimate cost. Yeah, someone might look down on us. Someone might patronize us. Someone might even physically hurt us. But the greatest thing we can give is our very life. That's what Jesus did given his very life. Martyrs say, hey, you can take my body, you can take my life, but I ain't bending. I'm not giving up. I don't care the cost because I'm not afraid of the one who can kill the body. I'm afraid of the one who can kill the body and the soul. And I know that I'm in his hands. So many have died for their faith. And we see here... In the highlight of the martyrs, those who have suffered the most, paid the ultimate cost, who have not bowed their knee to the beast, it is this group of faithful, victorious overcomers who experience the reward of resurrection and reigning with Christ. It's a beautiful image that we see here in encouragement that's used to motivate. Because in this life, we will face many trials, many troubles. But take heart. He has overcome the world. 2012, my wife and I went on a little trip to El Paso, Texas. Yep, her her grandparents were from El Paso. We drove all the way from Missouri all the way to El Paso. And so she decided to read a book, and I was in the car, and I was like, really, no music, no talking, just, so she said, well, I'll read it to you, I said, all right, sure, why not, and um, I I don't even remember what I said, but the whole point is this, it was Hunger Games, she was reading the book, Hunger Games to me, who here has seen the movies or read the novels, right, it's not just about a bunch of hungry people, okay, just know that, Um, after Sunday is Hunger Games, you guys get out of here quick. I know you guys are shooting to a restaurant or home. But, but the whole point is this. In, in the story, America's known as Pan Am. It's like post-destruction of what we know as America. And, and, and in this book and in this movie, they give up these children that have to compete in these games every year called Hunger Games. And most of them give their lives other than one champion. And, and it's a sick game that's put on by the Capitol, the people who are in control, that have all the food, that have all the resources. And everyone is just enslaved to this, this really tyrannical leadership. And, and in this moment, we see this, this young girl by the name of Katniss Everdeen that stands up against the man. There starts to be hope. There starts to be a chance that there can be a free Pan Am. That there can be no more kids given to die, to just amuse this this capital regime. And Katniss said this quote in the the book that I really like. She said this, What I need is the dandelion in the spring, the bright yellow that means rebirth instead of destruction, the promise that life can go on no matter how bad our losses, that it can be good again. The vision of what the future could and would be empowers their perseverance through the battles that they face. It's worth the cost. It's worth it. It's even worth their life. And many of us, we face this. We face it. Many of us, we've, we're the first Christians in our family. We have broke the chain. Some of us, we are the very first Christians people in our home to not be alcoholics and to not face addiction and to actually have a marriage that lasts. Some of us, we are the first. We've broken the chains. And I think it's important that we remember, we never forget that there will be hope in the end and the enemy will not have his power. And so when we stop and look towards what is to come, the righteous rule of Christ, we can begin to see that there's a day when the enemy will no longer have that power. And so we endure with anticipation what is to come. And so let me end with this quote. I want to end with this quote by Professor Fanny Buist. And he wrote this in his commentary about Revelation. He said this, Revelation is part of a consistent biblical example that human glory does not come from self-exaltation, but from submission to God and from obedience to him despite harsh opposition. Paul's opinion is profoundly true. Our present sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us. In our present groaning and longing for complete redemption for ourselves and for the whole creation, we must live in hope, that eager expectation of what we do not yet possess, but can be confident of in Christ. God is refining our character, even now, through our faithful endurance of suffering. But the best is yet to come. So at this moment, we're going to take communion. If you've not received communion, uh, raise your hand, and, and we'll bring it over to you. Okay? Okay? And we take communion once a month, and we take it on the first Sunday of the month. And I love communion because communion is is, is like a mirror, right? Uh, Many of us woke up this morning, and we looked in the mirror, and we said, Oh, (laughs) I, I need to put some makeup on. I need to do my hair. I got some bags under my eyes. You know, this doesn't just happen, guys. It doesn't just come together and I just snap and I'm just like, woo, all right, good to go. We look and we say, okay, maybe I need a little hair gel, a little this or that. And it's funny because communion's like a mirror. We look and sometimes when we look back at our week, we look at our life, we say, man, there are areas where I need to work on. And thinking back to this week of conversations, uh, of things in my life, of sins, I need to confess these. I need to give these to God. And so I think about that mirror of communion. We remember that Christ died for us on that cross, that he died that we may have eternal life, but that doesn't just give us a blank check to just do whatever we want. Right? Like, we have been saved by grace through faith. There's no longer condemnation, but our life should change. By the Holy Spirit, our life should be different. So we pick up our mirror, and we remember that his body was broken for us. We remember that knowing that this cracker represents a body that was bruised, that was cut, that was scourged. On our behalf, And so every time we come together, when we take communion, when we have this first Sunday of the month, when we take communion, we do this. We take this in remembrance of him. Then we have the cup. I'm thinking about injury. And some of us, we've had some major injuries in this room. And some of us, we lost so much blood, we we needed to have blood transplants. We needed to be treated because blood is life. If there's no blood, then we do not have life. And so in Christ's case, he he gave us the lifeblood of himself that we may have life in our place. And you hear the the medical side of it, the the, the blood loss, the cramping, dying by suffocation. And each drop covered our sins. And guess what? They covered mine. They covered yours. They covered yours. They covered yours. They covered yours. And he would have done it even if there was only one person on this planet. So every time that we come to take communion. Spilled a little. We take this and we do this in remembrance of him. Father, as we've looked at the what and the why of this passage this morning, I hope that we understand and, and have felt the power of the vision you gave John, that powerful encouragement for us now. That no matter which system of thought we may have or recognize that this is not a gospel issue of how we approach the millennium and those who hold to other views, they're still Christian brothers and sisters. We do not need to sidestep these discussions, but rather use them to refine each other, to point us all towards the greater why which is faithfulness in the face of pressure and persecution, however it may come. Therefore, God, I I pray for us to continue with faithful perseverance in following you, our risen Lord. We love you, we thank you, and we pray this all in your name.